Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts, Lucy Davis. I'm Benjamin Halden. So today we've got a very special guest on the podcast. It's a very much requested guest, especially from the YouTube channels. Um, so I'll do his, his ring walk entrance first. He is a Sunday Times bestselling author, host of his own podcast and events, and now a, a Rod Stewart lookalike. So thank you very much for coming on, James. Uh, who lookalike? <laughs> Rod Stewart. Do you know who Rod Stewart is? I don't think so. Bring about the mullet. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the mullet's a strong um, look, isn't it? I'm just trying to see how much I can polarise people with the mullet, the moustache, the big glasses, skateboard. Just, you got it all. Just anything I can, really. <laughs> but I've had to phase out the tash because we've got events coming up. And for talks, I like to have a bit more of a beard. I think it's more authoritarian. Really? Yeah. Okay. And I think I might have a photo shoot coming up for a big event we've got next year. and. If you're getting like a proper photographer and like a proper studio to have a photo and I'm just there with like a dirty mo. Yeah. There's no going back from it either as well. Once those photos yeah. are out in the world, they're out. That's it. And then say we were to use that for like a billboard or something. I did a piece with Lad Bible. My first video I did with Lad Bible got 80,000 new followers in a week. 37,000 in a day. And I remember messaging Luke, my manager, and going, what's going on? Every time <laughs> I refreshed happening? my feed in the morning, there was a thousand new followers. I was like, I've been hacked. I was like, something's going wrong. And then we were like, oh, it's the Lad Bible piece. The second time I did a Lad Bible piece, Lad Bible reacts, I had a mustache and all the comments were just about my tash. No one actually watched. Good comments? No, nah, all bad oh, comments. Oh, bad comments. Everyone just called me a pedophile. <laughs> and That's so rude, isn't it? <laughs> do you know what? Lad Bible comments are actually the worst comments I've ever seen anywhere. Was mm-hmm. that from mainly... I know it was a lot of Bible. Was that for mainly males or females? Probably males. Yeah. And the, the funny thing as well is like, I said to them in the comments, I go, I was a pedophile. That's the last thing. <laughs> <laughs> last thing you do and, is uh, give yourself away. Yeah, lab Bible comments, I'm, I'm almost like intrigued now because they do such a broad spectrum. When they report on like current affairs or something really boring, I always sometimes comment like, can't wait to tell the lads. Because <laughs> right? it's just not lad chat. But no matter what someone's kind of you know, they do something really generous or they do something in like a, a bid to be really kind. Some be like, why did you film it? Someone yeah. gives a thousand pounds to homeless person, but you had to film it. Yeah. Without filming it, we wouldn't be able to celebrate the act here. And yeah, it's it's a toxic, poisonous place, but the mustache will return. But for the time being, it's just the mullet. Love the mullet. I think TikTok's like that though as well. Like you get a lot of people who are like, why do you need to film everything or why do you need to film in the gym? And we didn't have those elements of what's going on there'll be no entertainment and there'll be no um, education even from stuff that people didn't film stuff so that's why it's such a big part I mean TikTok's its own sort of vortex of gosh yeah I, I, um, I quite dislike TikTok and do you know what it is though? Like I really enjoy longer form educational content like that's my vibe I love producing it and then TikTok, you could, I, I put up a video, which was when I was really bloated. I put that song, it's like the pregnant song. And it got like 4 million views. And it took like two seconds. And I, you know, when you can't wrap your head around something, because I'm just like, there's like 14 year olds with like 20 million followers. And that's like scary. Is, do you understand the algorithm on TikTok? Not a, not a clue. So you get points based on if the video is completed, if it's rewatched and whether or not it's shared or commented. I think you get most points for it fully watched and rewatched. So if you uh, can confuse or intrigue your audience and get them to watch the full duration, you get a points. And at first it will go up to what is known as like a stage one audience. 
depending on the point space, it will determine how big stage two is than how big stage three is. So the duplication and expansion of that video is based on a simple points algorithm, which is so different to any other social media platform, yeah. which is why such random videos can get the craziest reach. Yeah. And I did one once where uh, it was me just folding a crisp packet into a triangle <laughs> and Duran was looking at it like, what's going on here? And then it got to the end of the video. It's like a 40 second video. And all the comments were like, you just wasted a minute of my life. But because the comments were high, the completions were high and people even must have rewatched it thinking, what have I missed? Then it got the most views I think I've ever seen on TikTok. Yeah. Well, that's why the comments are great though, aren't they? Because even if they're negative, people are then, people start arguing with, amongst themselves in them, especially with TikTok as well. Like I started doing that series on things that should be illegal in the gym. Fuck me, it's like a minefield, yeah, isn't it? Like when people pick heavy. up on something that they don't like, they're just, things just go off in the comments. And that's what pushes it out more as well, isn't it? I'm guessing that goes on the point system as well. What I can't, what I can't stand as well is where people try and one-up you with something you're explaining or showing or demonstrating. And often it's PTs who don't know how to run a social media platform. So they think their way of getting the dick out and showing who's the biggest is to correct you. So sometimes I will, uh, you know, I'll be like, hey guys, we're doing Romanian deadlift, hip hinge movement. It's important that we keep the spine straight. Someone's like, you mean neutral? And I was like, okay, I know who I'm talking to. You don't. Like, yeah. And people come in there and I'm like, bro, you've, you've, you've picked the wrong place to swing your dick. Mm. And I hate that. They're like, you mean dorsiflexion? Like, <laughs> you know, when like, you hear PTs in the gym, they're like, yeah, so we're, you know, going to get you in, uh, you know, this type of pathway and with the Krebs cycle. You're like, bro, so many people on social media don't know who they're talking to. And I hate these, the bickering in the comments. And you can't help but go there. And look, you now check the performance of a post used to be based on likes and shares and views. It's now based on comments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, um, it's given a real like breeding ground for low lifes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Massively. But before you, obviously like you, the last couple of years, especially you've blown up a lot on Instagram. Prior to that, um, you, you grew most of your, especially business-wise on Facebook, didn't you? Because I remember I, I followed you on Facebook first, I think when you had like 3,000 followers. Because um, then, I think we all met about, was it three years ago? Four years ago? I think we met at Body, Body Power. Power. Body Power. 2018, well, mate. What was it? 2018? On the, on, the, on the stand that we were running there, remember? Three years ago? Hmm. Feels like the, a long the time The band ago. that should not be named. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can leave it. So, um, that, that, was a, that was a weird point in life. That was a weird point in life. I mean, we enjoyed it at the time, but... I think until you realise how competitive that market is, it was just, that's all it was ever. I mean, we had, a, we had a good laugh that weekend as well. Like, and we had, a, we had a good bunch of people there as well. But it was just fucking, that market is so saturated now, especially. Really hard. It's very difficult. That was an interesting weekend because I've been back in the UK maybe two, three weeks. And I've just been living at my parents' house. And before that, I'd been growing in Australia, but I'd never actually been in a fitness environment. I'd never gone to an expo before. So like your first... Speaking of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was actually doing a tour at the same time. So I done two touring events. And when I did my first touring event, it was Cardiff, it was Tramshed. It was about 60, 70 people. And I turned up and I was like, so what are we doing? <laughs> and my manager at the time, he's still my manager now, was like, well, you can hold a Facebook Q&A with 2,000 people for 40 minutes. So I'm sure you'll be fine. Yeah. And just put me out there on stage. A few gin tonics in me. I was like, all right. Did you have anything like preps or were you just literally like, and just need to chat to these yeah, people. I didn't even have a PowerPoint. So they put a holding image of me in the background. Oh. So, like, so, now, so now we have these like big talks and like there's a lot more to it. But in the onset, I just literally winged it. Because when I did the Q&As in the beginning, 
it was again just winging it. Like you say with the Facebook thing. So originally I started on Facebook. Instagram was very new and it was just the pictures yeah, yeah. platform. And the beginning of my content was blogs. So I used to have a WordPress site where I'd blog and there'd be things like potato versus sweet potato. Mm-hmm. But I've still got the insights on this app actually. And it really shocks people. So right now, my Instagram reach for the week is 2.4 million. My Facebook is 5.7 million. Just still way higher. Way higher. And we live in this world where people will only... Let's see if that camera can pick that up. Um, we'll put a screenshot up of it anyway, if you ping it over to Yeah. Me. So like uh, people... We live in this world where we, we govern the performance of something on the amount of views or double taps. But Facebook is still such a powerful weapon. I've got a video with Paul Lima in the gym. It's had 47 million views on Facebook. Really? Which video is that? Um, the jiu-jitsu one's got about 40 million and putting your weights away is about 47, 48 million. Yeah, I've seen that. I think I thought it was that one. And that that video was there for 13 months before going viral. After 13 months, it just went off. Yeah. And like, it, I've got a graph of it. It stayed really, really flat. And then just another 30, 40 million views. And Facebook is so neglected. I said to Sean Stafford recently, I was like, I'm happy you're still you're back posting on it. He's got over a million followers. Yeah, he's got a big page, doesn't he? And he wasn't even pushing the posts through. So when I saw him, I was like, you're a dickhead. And the nature of seeing a post on Facebook, people don't double tap it. If you double tap a picture on Facebook, nothing happens. Yeah. So we've got this culture of where we deem and assume that posts aren't doing as well there. Your Q&As stay there indefinitely. You can go back and watch one of my Q&As from four years ago. You can't do that on Instagram. Mm. Unless you save it as an IGTV, but not Which is people. only just coming actually, hasn't it? Couldn't you do that? But even then, the um, landscape kind of portrait and the way to like comments and even inserting a hyperlink is much easier on Facebook. And then also on Facebook, it's very easy to boost that post, mm-hmm. attach a link to it. So over the years, I put $5 on it, £2.50. Then there's a hard hyperlink on it. I would then even get my Instagram following to go watch it. There's so much going on with Facebook that people massively underestimate. So I was on that and you would have, started seeing that and my climb there was pretty quick and even I remember one week got 14,000 new followers in a week when I was at 50k which is 22% or something growth in a week which is staggering yeah but some of your the the potential to go viral on Facebook was so much higher than anywhere else and then suddenly in January 2018 four months before we met the algorithms were shunted Facebook got shut down as a place for brands in a bid to save Facebook, they pushed all brands to Instagram and Facebook was to remain a family and friends platform. So you'd see your cousin's birthday, what you were up to on your memories, but they didn't want brands to exist on Facebook so much. So my engagement got cut by 70, 80%. I had two and a half thousand people on the live. I was lucky to get 200. It just wouldn't show my live yeah. videos. And I was then forced to do more on Insta. But like you said about the content, my average video was two or three minutes. Yeah. Putting that into one minute made me a lot less popular because I have to come across as a bit of an arsehole to get my point across in a minute. And the videos where I had the text at the top and the bottom, having to take something like protein macros or fasting and putting it into one minute took so much of the conversation dialogue out of it. And then then there was the carousel videos. Then I had to chop the videos and put them through as minute one, minute two, minute three. Then IGTV came along. I was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) There you (laughs) are. fucking saviour. Yeah. That's so interesting though, like with the, obviously having to change your content in a certain way to kind of match an algorithm and meet something. But I think the way you came across in your videos when you used to do those one minute videos, 
I think they were very, very powerful because you had to be very much like, I mean, I don't use the C word, <laughs> but you were very kind of straight to the point, straightforward. So do you reckon like there's some sort of element there that did help you grow and get quite a lot of traction because of those videos? Yeah. And it was, imagine if we were like speed dating and I have a minute, sit down with someone. I'm not going to be like, hi, my name is James. I'm 32. I really like long walks on the beach. Like I'd sit down and be like, oh, fucking hell, you're not wearing that to a date, are you? And she'd be like, what? And I'd be like, only joking. And then, you know, like uh, you could just throw something. So, because all really you want to do is be remembered mm. or at least in some respect, not look like your competitors. So there was always an aspect of that with the content. And, and again, you, if you went up to someone on the dance floor and you really wanted their number, you almost have to become a different version of yourself to go get it. Mm. You've got to be audacious, confident, overly confident. You've got to be, you know, bold. You've got to go over and just for one minute, you have to be someone you're not usually. I've seen you from across the room. I think you're really pretty. I'd love to be able to ask you a number. Then you get the number, you leave. You now have all the power. You only needed to be someone for one minute and that could be a 10-year relationship. Mm. The same with Instagram and Facebook. All you need to do is change your persona for one minute, two minutes, three minutes in a bid to get someone's contact information and then they could be a potential customer for life. And the impacts you can have on people once they're on board, the, the hardest part is getting them over. Mm. So for me, it was always about being different to the competitor in any way I could. And when I looked at the fitness industry, I remember having this moment where I was like, I'm not going to be the most muscular. I'm not going to be the most lean. I'm not going to be the most experienced. I was like, I'm losing on every account here. I was like, there are dudes smarter than me, older than me, PT'd more than me. I was like, what can I do? And I was like, I can communicate points differently to how anyone's ever done it before. And I was like, that's going to be my niche. And then I didn't have to compete with anyone because of it. I think that's mm -hmm. why I take it back to, to body power when we met. That's why I take it back to them first. Is that I think during that period, we were still at a, a very rough time within the fitness industry where there's loads of shit around. And... I think like, you came in with that voice that was very honest. I mean, even the first time that we met, I think it may have been on the Saturday you came into standard just, and you were like, yeah, I've been out and we dropped a bag of pills last night. And in the, in the fitness industry at that time, that wasn't spoken about. Everyone knew what happened. And, and, and like, you'd see people like when you went on the night off of body power and stuff and people like you'd see in magazines on social media were just beaked off the cake and jaws swinging, but no one spoke about it. So I think straight away that kind of like, hit home in regards to how honest you were and, and the different type of person you were in regards to what you would talk about. And I think that is, is come through even with your page and stuff as well in regards to just more relatability and people open up and talking about things within the industry more as well. And I think that's obviously been one of the, the things that's massively helped that growth initially from, from when you first came through, especially because it was just so diluted in that period in time. And, and from like a, an, not an outlooker, but from someone who wasn't, I suppose, in that like, mainstream like fitness industry you could see what was going on as well and came in you were able to disrupt some of that as well I think that for me as well there's almost that like 8 mile aspect but you know at the end of 8 mile he's like I do live in a trailer park yeah. with my mom." I was like everyone has got these like demons and whatever even in my last book I wrote about sending dick pics to people when I was younger it's like every oh guy God, I read that and I was just like <laughs> yeah classic just get it out there yeah like, you, gotta you, just, every, you gotta tell people I hate the way that people try and pretend they're perfect because mm. pretending you're perfect will give you anxiety. Just straight away, it will. Me getting those things off my chest relaxes me. Because if they ever came out or, you know, someone go, oh, we saw James Smith doing a line off someone's ass in Ibiza. They'd be like, oh, classic. Yeah. <laughs> they'd, be like, they'd, be like, 
They're like, it was honest story. <laughs> and you can kind of protect yourself with honesty, but at the same time, if you can go through life being brutally honest and 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 cultivating a, a following of support of people that accept you for that, then when something does come to light, you're not going to lose them. But if you pretend to be someone you're not and you cultivate a following of people that don't like that, then you will fall. And as soon as something comes out or something's exposed, all those people will go, you're not the person that I was invested in. And boom, you start to see a declining career. So for me, like, especially at the moment, I can't bear this kind of undertone that's ignored so much about how much recreational drugs are being used. And for me, I think that I would love to see drug legalization, right? It's one of my big things that really annoys me in like just everyday culture. Because ultimately, first of all, I think that recreational drugs are going to get used no matter what. If people are sloppy drunks, they're going to do coke. And if people go to festivals and like house music or go to Ibiza, they're going to take MDMA. You objectively can't really last 12 hours on the dance floor unless you're tapped in the head on MD, (laughs) right? And then people don't want to peak and get smashed to the point they don't remember stuff and get a kebab and wake up in kebab juice. And... There's like, no one's talking about this stuff, but you go on a night out and it's obvious it's everywhere. Mm. Every toilet cubicle is. And like, for me, I'm like, why is no one talking about this? Why? And and people then end up being hungover on Sunday in like a world of pain and they feel like they're alone. And anxiety for a lot of people, I think could be, you know, alleviated if people would just share what they're getting up to and how they're feeling. Every time someone gets drunk and doesn't remember what they did the night before, they feel like they're the only person in the world that feels that way. And just society at the moment, I'm like, aren't we talking about this? Mm. Like, if people want to do it, that's fine. And I mean, I think Jordan Peterson uh, said something quite profound. He goes, people ask, why do people do cocaine? And he goes, it's pretty obvious because cocaine makes you feel amazing. He goes, the question we should, should be asking ourselves is why don't people do it every day? And it's because humans are a lot more smarter and in control of their life than people give them credit mm. for. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I was like, I'm just going to be open about it. Someone on my story questions the other day was like, do you do cocaine much? I was like, not that much. But if it's a big occasion, I will. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's, he was talking about something else to do that in regards to like pretending to be something that you're not and, and trying to carry that persona on, especially on social media and everyday life is, is, is very, very difficult. And obviously from like the outside looking in, the highlight that we see from like social media in regards to what you do, it would very much seem like you don't give a fuck about what anyone else thinks. But to a certain degree, Obviously, everyone cares and everyone's shaped by the, the feedback of society in some way. And I think you, Jordan, Peterson was say, Jordan Peterson was saying that about regards to anyone who doesn't think they're shaped by society in some way as a complete sociopath. How do you think you've got that balance between like receiving feedback on what you do, but then also not giving a shit about what people think? I say there's like a, a hierarchy of people who I care about. So I've got Luke, my manager, Sean, my business partner my close friendship group and my family. Like, as long as I walk into rooms with them and they're not like, mate, come on. Like, you know what I mean? Even recently, I lost about a thousand followers in a week for expressing my opinions about um, trans athletes in sports, about trans politics. I was definitely stepping out of my my field. And then I've got like a thousand followers that I've lost. So instead of taking it personally, I go to Luke and I go, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. He goes, mate, you're just expressing yourself. He goes, we've lost a thousand people who weren't going to buy a book, weren't going to come to Mm -hmm. an event. These are the people we don't want to associate with. He's like, good fucking job. 
maybe post about something that's not to do with transsexuals next week. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fair enough. So then I can alleviate that, that kind of caring for it with that. There is always a, you, you do have to, I do monitor my following to get like market research over how things are being received. And then I do have to take feedback from what posts are working, what posts aren't, because there has to be that kind of like, you know, testing the temperature in different places. So yeah, there's definitely an element, an element of caring. It's not like a, a blase, like I don't care about anyone. I'm just very specific about who I care about. And if there's some fucking loser in the Midlands who's just commented telling me they've unfollowed me, I don't care about that. But if I do something wrong to the point that say my top five, 10 people have a problem with it, I probably need to change my actions surrounding it. So as long as I've got that, I suppose, as long as I've got that like pH scale where they're telling me, no, you're going too far one way, too far yeah. the other, they can kind of balance it out. So I think for people, it's just about really keeping happy the people that it's important to and not trying to keep happy the people that are loosely following you or loosely supporting you. And to be fair, this would be the simplest way to say it. If they're not going to help me hide a dead body, I'm not going to take their opinion. <laughs> right. That's actually a really good way to put it because like, uh. I know I've spoke to you about it in the past before when I guess this is slightly different. It's not so much about people caring. It's more so about like, being trolled online and you've done some really really great videos on it that have kind of helped me from a perspective as well and I was saying to Ben I don't know if it's as women we're we're more emotional beings so sometimes I get super affected if like I'm having a bad day or I'm feeling slightly anxious and I see like a just a horrible fucking troll that'll really affect me whereas when I see you online, I'm like, he he's so good at like dealing with it. But like, are you? Like, are you actually, like, how do you approach that situation? I often have to sit and mull and dismantle a lot of my emotions. Mm. So even whether it's a high emotion, a low emotion, like a whatever it is, it, it requires further thought. So when I see that, my automated emotions are the shit ones. Mm. My automated emotions are like, Ugh. there's a hundred comments, 99 positive this is the best post you've ever done, blah, blah, blah. Then the one negative one, the harder I try to suppress it, the more it stays in mind. And the more I try and push it down, the more it comes to the front. So then I'm left. I'm like, okay, let's break this down. Let's deal with this. But rather than just seeing the comment, I try and see the person who's probably written it, where they're at, why they've done it. And when I can start building a more detailed picture of, why would someone write this? Mm. And I sometimes call them out. I'm like, bro, no one brought up in by by any decent set of parents would allow their kid to do something like this. Yeah. So I'm like, we've got a parenting issue. We've got an authoritarian issue. We've got someone, I'm like, what time is it? I'm like, it's 3 p.m. They probably should be doing a job if they've got a job. Probably got some unemployed person. Probably sat at home. Probably not getting any attention. Probably never got any attention from their parents. What else? Do they really mean that? Maybe. Or this is their only opportunity of getting attention today. This could be the only thing they feel that makes them feel like they even exist on the planet today. Mm. And I try and think about all these different scenarios and go, fuck, poor guy or poor woman. Yeah. And it's hard to do this, but straight, I, I truly honestly believe that. And even, you know, there were some outrageous comments that occurred after the football last weekend. Mm. And the racist stuff was absolutely unacceptable. But even with that, and not to discredit racism or in, in any regard, I looked at it and I thought, I wonder if these people are truly racist or if these people are truly desperate for attention and will go to any depth to get it. And it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. And I think it's called the hot, cold empathy gap, where 
If you're really hot, you forget what it's like to be cold. And when you're really angry, you forget what it's like to be sad. And you can't have that rational seeing of the other side of the fence. And with these people, because we have lives, drive, visions, careers, we really struggle to put ourselves in the shoes of the people writing this. Mm. And that's what really kind of skews our, our understanding of it. And throughout history, always, no matter who it is, always like 1% of people are just going to hate you for doing it. Yeah. And I think that's ingrained into society because humans shouldn't really excel in the ways they are now. There are more people watching our stories in a single hour of a day than you would have met in your whole human existence mm-hmm. a few thousand years ago. And I think we know no one's ever had the ability to comment something without repercussions. There's no repercussions yeah. for commenting that. So like when you add up all these things together, you realize it's probably not even a personal attack. It's actually often a reflection of where they're at. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can continually be very proactive breaking these down, you can have an easier time with it. But unfortunately, it comes with the deal. You can't get 350,000 people watching your video and the business that comes from that without taking the trolls that are going to come with it. Yeah, 100%. I think we see that everywhere. Though. And like you said, it's very rarely about you as the individual, the criticism's coming out. It's more about the person who's giving it and you're more so just that person who's holding up the mirror and reflecting back to them of what they've not got potentially in their life. And that's why you're, they're attacking that thing that's making them feel that way, which is, which is you. But do you think potentially more early on, because I know you, you spoke about before with imposter syndrome, do you think some of those comments in your earlier days is what contributed to, to making you feel that way sometimes? Or was, was that just like a, an internal thing of, I don't know enough or there's people who know more than me and, and more of um, a comparison to, to others that made you feel that way? I think um, it's quite funny. Paul Mort discredits imposter syndrome. Same. So I come in. I say, yeah, maybe, I yeah. <laughs> so maybe you're just not successful <laughs> enough yet, bro. <laughs> um, but like, again, do you know what's great? Paul's one of my good mates. We happily disagree on that, which is something society's lost the ability to do. Like suddenly, if we don't fully agree on everything, we can't get on, which is fucking, it kills me. I don't know where that's stemming from, probably the unis, but like the imposter syndrome thing, to me, it's just a way that I deal with things. When I'm uh, even on tour at the moment, I, when we were doing the Australian tour, we're going to a theatre, I'm like, fuck, this is an amazing theatre. I'll be like, wow, it's an amazing stage. Wow, it's a full house tonight. And then I go, oh, this is my event. Like it would literally just dawn on me like, oh shit. And I go outside and my name would be there and I'd be like, on the front <laughs> like I don't ever go through life like actually living in it like even today on the tube on the way here I was like it's kind of amazing that I'm a guest on these guys podcast I like I I had it in the diary I knew I was coming I chatted to you but I never let it dawn on me and then I was like fuck we're gonna have a conversation that thousands of people are gonna listen to I was like how amazing is that and I like removing myself from it and then when for instance this Friday the roundhouse got 1500 people that won't feel real until I get there and I go, oh, this is my talk. Yeah. And when I'm out there, it's just, just suppress it. I go there and I'm thinking, how the fuck did I sell 1,500 people to come here? But instead of worrying about that and worrying like an imposter, I just get performance anxiety where all I think about is how well I need to nail it. Because unlike a video or a podcast or an edit, we can go back and do it again. Mm. In a live talk, you can't. And after the talks, I'm actually exhausted, not from the talk, but the four hours before it. Yeah. When my brain just doesn't stop. I actually had my first bad night's sleep last night, already now thinking about next week. 
And like, it's more of a performance. Like I, I hold such high standards for things now mm. that I'm too preoccupied with that to be worried about being an imposter. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I only let yeah. it dawn on me on, at the moment. I only let the floodgates in. I actually haven't looked at my show notes for three months. I'll have to wait two days before and then I'll just be obsessed with it. If I start getting into it now, I won't be able to do anything else beforehand. I think whenever you move through like any new boundaries in life, though, no matter what they are, there's, there's going to be that element to potentially, doesn't matter like how successful you get. And like even, even with that feeling of, of feeling anxious and whatever, like t- today coming to this podcast, I don't think like we were nervous about doing it, but I woke up this I morning, I had to start Googling <laughs> what the fucking average pulse was. I, was. I was up this morning measuring my pulse, mate. I was like, why the fuck you am I really resting about heart rate so rate. high? Yeah, and I think that, that doesn't like dawn on you until you're about to do something. Like, because we'd, we'd booked this in, we spoke about doing it this week. And I never get nervous about doing podcasts, but then until you turn up and prior to starting and until you start getting into it and enjoying it, I think like whenever you go into those new territories or boundaries, that's always going to be there. So do you, do you think, I suppose, there's ever a point where, or you ever get to a certain point of success where that doesn't happen? I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, no, I doubt it. I, I very much doubt it. I very much doubt it. I'm going to walk in and be like, you're fucking nice. <laughs> but one thing that I think really helps keep me grounded is I see my life as like a, a spider diagram. So uh, you have different points. You know, like if you were to look at someone's strengths and weaknesses, you'd be like, marketing, great. Sales, great. HR, not good. Or whatever it would be. For that, I would say business, that part of the diagram's good. Relationships with friends is very good. Financial is in a perfect position. I joked with someone the other day. I said, I'm so glad I don't earn five times what I do because I'd be fucked. If I earn five times what I do, I'd be in an existential crisis of do I work or do I throw it all away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite like the amount I earn. I'm in like a really like nice spot where certain purchases still sting. When I get like an 800 pound for dinner with me and my mates, I'm like, oh, you you fucking pricks, I'll get this. Like if I earn five times more, I'd be like, but then I'm still always aware that there are so many components of uh, my life that I'm not a superstar. I haven't held down a solid relationship in probably five to 10 years. I haven't had a long-term girlfriend for a very long time. Like I'm 32. I'd probably have wanted to have a family by now when I was younger, but then obviously everything that's happened as far as a career has just shunted all of that back. And I had, um, I did a magic mushroom trip in Sydney a few months ago. And it really got me thinking, have you ever done psychedelics? No. Was this when you were there in? Yeah. Yeah, he spoke about briefly when we had him on the, the podcast. I've done... Damon was mind blown, wasn't he? When he was, he was like, telling he was like us. the best thing he'd ever fucking done. Yeah. yeah and, and do you know what? I would... And it, this is why I hate when drugs are all put into one category. Like, Coke and MD help you party. But then, like, opiates and heroin, I'm like, yeah, let's not talk about those because I'm not really an expert in those. But psychedelics, are, I literally feels like therapy. And that's not to shit or discredit real therapy. I think there are some people that would never want to leave reality to seek help, but there are some people that do. And when I did psychedelics, sat there for like seven hours, put some music in, and people think that really bad things are going to happen and really negative situations come. But it's more so there are thoughts in your mind that you suppress, not because they're bad, not because they're evil, not because they're dark. You just don't think about them because the fact that I'm 32, I probably want to be with someone a few years before having kids and doing the maths of figuring out, hold on, am I going to be a really old parent? 
those conversations you can suppress by looking at your bank account or buying a Gucci t-shirt, right? You can suppress those mm-hmm. really easily. So in a world where it's so easy to just suppress these tones and things you're thinking about with, you know, purchases, new watch, new this, new that. When I took mushrooms, it strips your ego. It goes, doesn't matter what you wear. doesn't matter what you own. doesn't matter how much money you have. Let's bring your real things to life, like relationships, like family, like future family. And you have to sit and think about them because you've got no other distractions. You, you don't want to look at your phone. You've got music in. And when I was in this psychedelic kind of trip, I was like, James, there's a, there's a real chance that you might finish this race out of all the people you know with the most money and most recognition, that everyone else will have a family. And they'll be sat there kind of laughing at you like, look at that guy, 40 years old, sick, got a yacht, got loads of houses, but didn't manage to get the main, most valuable thing he should have out of his life. And I sat there with that for like five hours and I was like, fuck. So like, even though there's so many things from like a success standpoint, the people can really like be like, oh, you're doing well, you're doing well, you're doing well. There are still blatant gaps in, in everyone's lives that, again, just often get ignored, which is why I'm like, so important for people to realize that although I've got so much more than other people, other people have so much more than what I have. Mm. And when going back to the point of who do you care about their opinion, my family don't really care about, they do care, but they, they're not like, oh my God, you've got so many followers. They're not mm. like, oh my God, you made loads of money. They just pretty much want me to be happy. And mm. the only thing that made them happy was having a family. So sometimes there's times where I sit back and I'm like, fuck, I really want to make my parents proud. I might have to actually focus on settling down and getting a, holding down a relationship because my mom and dad don't travel overseas. I'm not going to fly in business class anywhere. My mom won't go out on a boat for the day. They're so happy in their home. Mm. I genuinely on mushrooms was thinking, if I brought a wife and kid home, that would make them happier than anything I've ever done. <laughs> so sometimes when I take psychedelics, I'm, I'm really brought down to this reality of, of that kind of stuff. And like with work, with events, with social media, it is very easy to get overwhelmed. But then there are other areas of your life where it's very easy to get underwhelmed. And you're like, oh, there's, there's fucking a lot of things missing here. And as long as I stay in this kind of grounded reality that I'm not putting plasters on big gaping wounds, then yeah, it's, it's fine. But like, although I'm incredibly happy with life and how everything's going up, I often sit back and I'm sure you do this too. We live some of the best lives that have ever been lived on this planet. We're stress-free. We don't have to worry about employers. We haven't got any real type of stress. We're fit and healthy enough to survive COVID if we get it. <laughs> you know, like no one's had the easiest life that we have. Lay down on a plane, like fresh water, heat and roof yeah. and all this stuff. So like, even though we have all of these things and we live like some of the best lives ever, like it's, it's very easy to remain grounded. It's very easy for these things because I do spend a lot of time thinking about the things that I don't have. And that's what I think a lot of people don't do. And that's what having more money would do. If I earn five times what I earn now, I'd probably be like, fuck that. Yeah. Don't worry about it because they can distract themselves. And if you look at wealthy people, I genuinely think they go through life distracting themselves. Isn't there a lot of um, data in regards like the percentile of people who commit suicide are in that, that bracket of earning over a certain amount? I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I know it's, it's pretty high. And they've, they've given that, what's the figure for? If you earn over a certain amount, your happiness doesn't get any greater. Is it like $80,000 or something? Income society. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and I completely agree with that. And one thing, reason I went sober for so many months at the beginning of this year was I appreciate how much alcohol is just a numbing drug. It's just a numbing drug. That's what it does. It, it disassociates you from introspective thoughts and reality, where psychedelics go completely the other way. 
with booze, I don't think about my problems. Mm. I just don't. I just think about the next drink. And also when I drink, the only thing I want to do is increase my blood alcohol level. Whenever blood alcohol levels go down, you feel shit. You can't just have two gin and tonics and stop without feeling shit. So I'm in this constant climb. And then in the establishments you drink at, it's very easy to get more alcohol. Mm. I was wondering why I kept blacking out. Never been so easy to climb alcohol. Levels. And then suddenly you need to get bags in, otherwise you know you're going to black out. Yeah. You're like, what's the point in drinking six hours but I'm not going to remember the next six? So you've got this like spectrum on the right. Then on the left with psychedelics, you, you have the conversations with yourself that you haven't been having. I, I genuinely feel like I grow as a person when I do it. And, then, and some people are like, oh, I can't believe he's advocating it. Like, there's no one that's really done it and come back and gone, wish I never did that. It's, and it's crazy that alcohol is legal. The one thing that suppresses all of your problems in your life. And the one thing that brings mine glaringly close and up in front of me. And psychedelics literally cultivate all the suppressed thoughts I've ever had and put them in front of me and say, you've got to deal with this for the next five hours. And that is the one that's illegal. And um, when it comes to like depression, I think that if you look at MDMA trials with depression, ketamine with depression, LSD with depression, all the evidence is positively correlated with helping people. And before Duran took psychedelics, I said to him, there's a high chance this would be the most meaningful thing you've ever done in your life. And he didn't listen to that. And then when he did it, he said, that's the most meaningful thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and like, it's crazy for people to like... It's weird that you should say that because last time I came down to London, it was so weird. It was a coincidence. I was on a train and saw a black girl who came over and like sat next to me and she's like, oh, I recognize you from Instagram, whatever. She was um, working on something like commuting back and forth from Manchester to London. She was working. I can't remember the the place where it was, but she's, she's basically doing the trialing with people who suffer with like... Uh, dementia, depression, anxiety, stress, that kind of thing. And they were using psychedelics and all the the, the testing and the results and stuff that we're getting back were also positive. They're, they're, they're looking and they're on the borderline and pushing a lot of stuff through now, especially for dealing with um, PTSD and stuff like that as well. So there's obviously a lot, a, a lot more data building to, to support that narrative of what you're talking about in regards to, to bringing people out and realizing a lot of stuff, especially for people who've been through trauma and stuff as well. So I think that'll be interesting. Like, I don't think I've ever done Mushrooms over that. Is view. it an actual mushroom? Why do you put it in like an omelette or something? <laughs> if you wanted to. They're like, they're like tong, long, tall stalks. So you can get that. You can get them in capsules. Don't encourage you. Or the ones we had in... I was just curious. The ones I had overseas were in chocolates. <laughs> the guy who makes them into chocolates is like a chocolatier as well. So a lot, oh my of, gosh. a lot of psychedelics aren't party drugs. The people that sell them to you will only sell them to you if you're going to use them properly. Mm -hmm. So we had to have a shaman, a guy that guided us into it, a friend of ours. So a friend of ours sits us down, comfortable seats in a meditation room, and he meditated us into the mushroom trip. So we did a guided medita meditation as the mushrooms were coming in. And he took us for a long walk across a golf course to sit us on the edge of the cliffs, and he came around and made sure we were all okay. Like, so people that do psychedelics take it very seriously. They're not mm. like, oh, let's do this on the night yeah. out. It, it's all about maximizing kind of that experience. And it's crazy. The, the kind of thought pathways in which you have you know, when you learn something, you're taught something, even in your early days of being a PT, you're like, that now makes sense. That pathway in your mind will remain there forever because you understand it. You're not going to forget. You know, learning a strength curve when you're bicep curling, you suddenly go chest supported on a bench and you've got a different pump and you're like, wow, mm. that makes sense. With psychedelics, you create these new pathways of thoughts you've never had before and you keep it when you come out of it and it stays with you forever. And 
I remember, um, just going to turn into a drug podcast. We're not, not going to be able to monetize this now on YouTube. Uh, doing DMT, which is a psychedelic for about five, 10 minutes. And it's, it's got close your eyes, put on London grammar, whatever. My friend said to me, why are you doing that? And I said, I'm excited to get answers to questions I haven't thought of yet. And that blows people's minds. The thoughts and the answers that I got from myself on the last DMT trip I did, I never even knew the question before I did it. And afterwards, it took me two, three weeks to unwind what I asked myself. And someone said, what did you ask yourself? I said, this is too personal. I don't want to tell you. I'm still figuring it out. And um, I, I think to myself, like, how can this be so wrong compared to other things? But my decision to go to Australia as a PT came from a psychedelic trip. So I never wanted to go to Australia before. I was actually in one of the most successful relationships in my life. And she wanted to go to Australia. And I said, I don't want to go. That was a year before. I had no interest in going to Australia. One psychedelic trip, introspective conversation. Like, why are you here? I should go to Australia. No way. Yeah, and I went. Uh, six weeks later, I was gone. I, once that thought was like, you know, like Inception, they say once a thought is planted in your mind, that was it. So I go into the gym, Jackie, Jackie Smith, if you're listening, you're legend. <laughs> she's on like a cross trainer. She's a bit early. I go sit on the windowsill. I go, oh, Jackie. I go Australia. She goes, good. She goes, me and my husband, Mick, it's our biggest regret in life. She goes, we had the opportunity to go. We stayed for family. We should have gone. The next day she came in for PT. She was like, we booked your ticket. Yet. And she cried when I left because I've been Aww. training her for years. And I was like, oh, fuck. So I go home. I'm going to barbecue with my dad. I'm like, dad, uh, I might go Australia. <laughs> he goes, I've always imagined you living somewhere like that, son. It's like, Oh shit. I was like, all these signs are yeah, going. Yeah, supposed to be. So I was reading the four hour work week and I got to a point where it goes, the opposite of happiness is boredom. So I'm going, I'm bored. Books my flight. Every, all my friends thought I'd lost my mind. Uh, my best mate, who just got one of them married last weekend, said to him, I'm going, oh, he goes, why? He goes, you get paid more than any PT I know. You fucking live at your mum and dad's house. You're abroad every weekend. You got the best fucking life. You're a fucking idiot. Why are you going? And I was like, I just need to go. And Went on my own, traveled on my own, went to Bali on my own. Never really even traveled on my own before. And it was the single best decision I've ever made in my life, which came from a psychedelic trip. So were you, you were a PT in the UK and then you flew over yeah, to I've, Australia and then became a personal trainer there? Yeah. So yeah. I've been PT in Bracknell in, a, in like a business park. Mm. So there was like fucking Halfords on one side and a fucking commercial office on the other. And we're just like a random gym, 20 pound a month. That's where I started. It's called Absolutely Fitness, which doesn't even make sense. Absolutely Fitness. So I'm in a 20 pound a month gym with a little car park around the outside of it. And I was probably charging like 40, 50 pounds an hour, but my gym rent was 360 a month. So my first day of the, of the, the month, I'd pay for my rent. Mm. So I was doing that and then the rest was all, all take home. A lot of that was cash. And I was living with my mum and dad. <laughs> right. So I was living a good life. Yeah. I was living like, a, I was fucking pretty lavish or whatever. I didn't save enough to go traveling. I was there for like three, four years and I was the highest paid PT in the gym. I was a bit bored. Everyone would come to me because I was the one that was always on the floor PTing. And I then went to Australia because I wanted something more competitive. And I had this discussion yesterday. From Bracknell, I could have even gone to London or Australia. They were the only two places that would get more competitive. So I'm not going to fucking London. And, uh, Psychedelic trip was like, you need to go to Oz. And going to Oz, went to fitness first where I met Duran. I fucking hated it. It's the worst gym I've ever been in my life. No natural light. 32 other personal trainers who were all cocks. 
Bullcocks. <laughs> Maybe two or three of them were right. And I met James Shaw, my business partner. And all the, the rest of it seems like a fairy tale, right? I go to Australia. I end up uh, moving in with two of my good mates, Willits, so I still was living with them. I then struggle at the gym. One day I go in, I'm just like, I fucking hate this. And another guy's leaving. And Duran goes, that's the other James. Because there was one James there. Then I was the James replacing him. I said, where are you going? What gym are you going to? He's like, no, man, I'm off to build websites. He, and Duran goes, yeah, he fucking hates people. So I said, oh, I've got an idea for a website for you. So I met my business partner in a random accident as he was leaving Fitness First as I was walking in. No way. So that's oh why he's Duran's like best mate as well. So then me and James started building the academy and then we hired Duran. And then Duran worked for us for about a year. And like, I won't get into too many details about that, but basically I had to have a conversation with Duran where I was like, mate, you need to leave the majority of your money behind and go online. He was earning 75% of his money in the gym, mm. 25% from what he was doing for the academy. I go, mate, you need to take home 75% less money, but be 100% more free so you can travel, so you can go home, so you can go see your family. And everything since then has been like a fairy tale. I always think to myself, if I hadn't had that inception moment of going to Australia, I wouldn't be in this room with you now. I doubt I would have made it past the five, six year mark as a PT. So I would have got bored somewhere. I don't know. I genuinely don't know what I would have done. That's so mad. I think you say it sounds like a fairy tale, but I've, I think I've heard you talk about before, like the elements I got have, lead, have led up to that point as well, which I really resonated with at one point. Um, and I think it was, it was prior probably to you being more, even more successful than you were when you were an on-the-floor PT. And I can resonate with that because I remember when, like we were speaking before, when I first quit the police and went into PT and I dropped like my full-time wage and I was taking home literally £300 a month. I'm a car was £320 a month, so I don't even know how the fuck I was surviving. But I remember, I think you said, this might have been prior to when you went to Australia. You had to sell your car and you had a couple of pounds left in the glove compartment. So we have a lot of PTs who usually listen to the podcast as well. And I think they often look at people who are way further along in their journey and, and compare to that all the time and, and can never see how or, or where that, that that comes from. So I think like potentially hearing your story of where and how that before James Smith got successful and, and how that kind of developed along that journey from literally having a couple of quid in your, in your glove compartment and then spiraled off to, okay, now I'm off to Australia, now I'm doing talks, now I've got a social media following. So um, when I was in the gym, I always had good cash flow because... I could literally just spend more time in the gym and earn more money. And I remember when I, uh, I was 26, 26, I was driving a Catsy beaten up Volkswagen Polo where I still had to put the key in the door. And I'd been driving it for like a few years. I got it when I came back from traveling. So it'd been written off, but some Romanian guy had fixed it. So it's Catsy, your insurance is a bit more, but you get it much cheaper. Mm. So I'm driving that and um, I'm going into work one day as a PT and my client, Susan, Susan Green, she goes, what the fuck, James? She goes, you're the best and best paid PT in here. Sort your fucking car out. And I was like, I like my little polo. She's like, it's a piece of shit. <laughs> she was like, she was like, I pay you far too much money. Her and her husband, uh, I, I love them. They're like my second mum and dad. I did 30 pounds for half an hour, um, half hour slots. But then she needed to come train with me every day. If she didn't, she would just get pissed the night before. So I'd see her at 9am every day for half an hour. And I charged her hundred pound a week. So she gave me £400 a month. Then her husband would come in and see me from 9.30 till 10. They couldn't train together. They fucking didn't get on that <laughs> one. 
So I was earning 800 pound a month just from one couple that trained between nine and 10. And they were my favorite. She would bring me in food left over from the night before. She'd be like, so she's like, we made curry last night. Like, <laughs> so I'm making 800 pounds. I'm doubling my gym rent just from one couple that come in. One day she's like, you need to sort that fucking car out. So I was like, okay. So after work one day, I went to Volkswagen in High Wycombe. And there's a white Golf GTI out front. I was like, sick, I'm getting that. And I went in and no one would talk to me because I'm in tracksuit bottoms and a black tee. No one's coming over to me and talking to me. And I'm literally like, I had to stop some guy. I was like, hey, mate, can I ask you a question? I was like, yeah, I was like, how much are the repayments on that? He was like, oh, it's about 350 a month. He goes, I've only got five minutes. I was like, okay. He sat with me for two hours. <laughs> and he just thought I was a bum. He just thought I was, he had no money and he couldn't <laughs> afford it. I was like, okay, I'll buy it then. So sweet, put some money down, bought it. Had like a nice, maybe one, two-year-old Golf GTI. I loved it. It's 350 pounds a month. And that car was so heated seats. I hadn't had heated seats in like six years. I don't know. I never had a car with heated seats. My car before I went traveling didn't even have that. Turn up to the gym, 5.30 a.m., heated seats. Ooh, gym door's not open yet. <laughs> I was sat there with my Starbucks coffee being like, this is the life. Like the little like red light interiors. So then I had that car and I just got it. I never even looked at like the finance and everyone looked at that. I was like, 350, I can afford that. Let's fucking get it. Um, so then when I had this epiphany, I went traveling. That car was still at home ticking over 350. Um, and I only had 3,000 pounds in savings when I went to Oz. So even though I was earning good money, I didn't save any of it. Mm. I had a very good, this is why like I'm quite carefree now. I've done so much in my 20s. I would be like Denmark one weekend, Sweden the other, Dubai. Then I'd be in like, Fucking, my mum be like, where are you playing? I'm like, I'm in Brussels, I'm in Milan. Like, I play rugby every weekend in a different country. And I was dating a chick who lived in Norway, which was sick. <laughs> Get onto that. If you want. <laughs> <laughs> so then when I went traveling, uh, I was training people online. I had like 3,000 followers when I left on Facebook. And I didn't have a business Insta. But for 3,000 followers online, I sent an email marketing email. I was like, who wants to do online PT? And 10 people took me up on it. So I was making 500 pounds a week while I was backpacking, which was sick for someone with 3,000 followers and no mm. business Insta. And I had so much spare time from servicing these guys that I started listening to audiobook, audiobook, audiobook. And I was in Gold Coast, 2016, November. I listened to Gary Vee's Crush It. It's a bit cheesy. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I need a business in Everyone starts with Gary yeah. Vee, I feel. I That's like, like the foot in the door. I was like, fuck, I need this. And then I traveled down and I got to Sydney and I loved Sydney. But when I was there, I probably still had like eight to 10 probably online clients, but my following was still like 3,000. But also I was living in a backpackers in Sydney called Wake Up, which is really fucking, which is quite expensive for uh, a backpackers because Sydney in December is the most expensive time to stay there. Mm. So that's when I ended up staying with Lord for a bit. I had to say to Lord, like I'd never stayed with Lord in my life. We went to uni together, but that was it. I was like, I can't afford to stay in a hostel. So she was like, come stay with me. So I'm staying with Lucy Lord and in my Christmas card, she wrote me that year. It said, thanks for not trying to fuck me. <laughs> so when we, That's fucking brilliant. That when so we first great. met, she thought I was going to try and fuck her. But like four years later, still never, not, that, not on the cards. So then even my mate, George, who I'd only met three or four times before, he let me stay at his house. So like all the way around up until Christmas, I'm like sofa surfing around my friends just to try and save money. And my dad texts me the day before Christmas Eve Eve. He's like, are you coming home? I never missed a Christmas in my life. And he was like, can you afford a flight? And I was like, no. So he sent me a BA flight to come home. So I fly home Christmas Eve. This is a long story. But I fly, come home Christmas Eve. Literally land like 6 a.m. Christmas Day, spend it with my family. As soon as I hit Hong Kong, I applied for my work and holiday visa because you have to do it offshore. Mm -hmm. The second I land in Hong Kong, I didn't even have a piss. I applied. I wanted to be back in Australia so bad. 
I applied for it. As I'm sat having Christmas lunch with my mum and dad, the email comes through. I was refreshing my phone the whole time. <laughs> it had been granted. So from whatever date I go into Australia, I can uh, stay for a year. So I'm buzzing. So I'm sat there. It's like January 1st, January 2nd. And I was like, I need to get rid of this fucking car. It's costing me 350 pound a month. It's just sitting there. I was like, looked up online, like how much it would cost to like sell it. I was like, I'm going to get a couple of grand out of this car, surely. But I realized I hadn't even paid off like with the finance from the f- period I'd had the car. So I was like, fuck. And Christmas isn't a great time. Or well, January 1st isn't a great time to sell a car. Everyone's skin. Mm-hmm. I want to fly in the next two weeks. It's middle of summer in Sydney. As I was having Christmas dinner with my family, all my friends are at the races. They're at the beach. They're wearing Santa's hats and bikinis. I'm sat in my fucking parents' house. <laughs> like, tans fading. I was like, all I want to do is go back to us. So in the end, I had to go to We Buy Any Car. So I drive it to Maidenhead Holiday Inn. And I get there and I go in. And the guy's like, going around, he's like, oh, you got a little scratch here. Or you got a little dent here. I'm like, fuck, I wish I drove it more carefully. When I had it, I was like, it's fine. I'm making hundreds of pounds a week. And um, he was like, I can offer you this. And I was like, please, no. I was like, can you do better? He's like, I can't. The guys literally just work out like an algorithm. I lost 1,800 pounds selling my car. So all my money I had in my account was gone to the point, like literally gone. So you had to pay them to take it? I had to pay them to take my car. I had to take a loss. They were like, we'll pay off your finance and take the car. I lost 1,800 pounds giving up my oh, car. heavy. So I'm sat there. It was, uh, it was in the cup holder where the money was, right? It's eight pounds in coins. So I take that out. I put it in my pocket. I have to call my mum. I'm like, mum, I'm a holiday in a maidenhead. Can you come get me? I hadn't even thought I wouldn't be driving home. So it's fucking 2nd of January, cold grey day. My mum picks me up in a little day in Matisse. And I was sat there. I was like, can we go nut west? She's like, why? I was like, I need to pay eight quid in. She was like, fucking hell, James. <laughs> she was like, do you want some money? I was like, no, no, no. But I need eight pound in my account. So I put it in there. And when I got home, I was writing some tenacious emails. I was like, join my online PT, James Smith in a circle, whatever I called it. And then I was looking on PayPal and I had like loads of renewals coming up in the next three days. And when they came through, I had 600 pounds in my bank account. So I bought my Air China flight to Sydney. It was 11 hours, 12 hours stop off, maybe 12 hours again. And I bought that return. It was cheaper to book return. And I flew out like two weeks later. And literally when that flight was the worst flight I've ever got. So all the movies are dubbed in Chinese. You get nudged by the air stewardesses and they just give you noodles. Like breakfast, just give you noodles. Not a smile on their face, nothing. I had an old guy sleep on me. I'm pretty sure he was dribbling on my arm. But from where I was like holding his head <laughs> off me, I was getting mad sweat patches. And um, so I'm watching Saving Private Ryan in Chinese. <laughs> I get to Beijing airport and I'm like, I fucking stink. So you go into a hotel, you can book a shower by the hour. Have a shower. But then Beijing airport, you can't buy deodorant. The whole airport, they got Starbucks Costa, then just, you could buy a Fendi handbag, but you can't get deodorant or toothpaste. So I've got no toothpaste, no deodorant. I've got a 12-hour stop-off in Beijing. Right? Oh, At this point, my armpits. Right? I'm not a smelly guy because I always wear antiperspirant. I wear women's deodorant. I, I, I fucking, in 12 hours, I went around that airport, right? I went to every place, nothing I could get. Another funny story is my MacBook was so old and shit that it had to be plugged in. To be used. Yeah, as yeah. soon as I took it out, a two-second battery and then it was gone. And there's no Hotmail, no Gmail, no Facebook, no YouTube. All of that's banned in China. So they, social media is banned there and you can't use Google. So I couldn't check my emails. I couldn't go on YouTube. I couldn't get Netflix. 
you have to get a VPN where the, in, the internet wasn't quick enough. So I had to scour through my memory on my old laptop to try and find a film. And the only film that was there was Dallas Buyers Club. And I was like, oh, I've heard this film sick. So I'm sat on the floor in Beijing Airport, my laptop plugged in. Two hours out of my 12-hour wait, I've killed. But now I'm worried I've got AIDS. <laughs> so I'm sat there like, this is the worst trip of my life. What I did for fucking 10 hours, I think I read How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is, I fucking hated that book. I've not read it. Don't. And then I finally do my second leg to Sydney. And yeah, then when I got there, I was in a backpackers. And from there, I had to check out every two or three days to check back in because I only had the money in my account to buy three nights at a time. So this is 2017, beginning of 2017. I couldn't afford to buy a week. I had to do three days. And then I would come down and sit in reception at 10 a.m. and I couldn't check in till three. And the person working there was like, why do you always sit here in reception? I was like, I'm waiting for my room. So like, didn't you stay with us just last night? I was like, yeah, I need to swap rooms. But then they got, they started being nice to me and they're like, James, come here. They're like, you can go in the room so I get bottom bunks. So I did this for like a couple of weeks. I signed my fitness first contract from my bunk bed. So it was like, it was mad when I went back. I was proper skinned. I was so excited to go to fitness first until my first day. And I hated it. I hated it. 32 PTs in a small gym. Everyone already had PT. And I was really rubbing PTs up the wrong way when I was talking to their clients. And one guy came in and was like, if you keep talking to my clients, I'm going to take your fucking head off. Midday, my first day. So rude. That's why Duran was actually so kind. Duran saw the animosity from the trainers. Duran got on with them all really well. They were his boys. He saw how much they hated me and was like, let's go for a coffee. So he took me out the PT room. He's like, come on, bro, let's go for a coffee. I actually complimented his trainers because he had black on black flyknit races. Sick trainer. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I like your trainers. I'm wearing black on black karachis. He's like, my <laughs> So then Duran took me out for a coffee and he was like, ignore those guys. He was like, they're Australian. It's just mm. the way they are. And um, yeah, then from there, it was, I had to do more with online because I just hated being in the gym. There was, I remember there were days where uh, I was part of a franchise. The only way to get uh, a one-year contract at Fitness First was to sign with a franchise. So I, in essence, had a boss for the first time in my life. And he'd be like, where are you? I'm like, I'm just getting a coffee. I wasn't. I was in Bondi. My gym was in the city centre. I was like swimming in the sea. I was like, I don't feel well today. I was pulling sick days the first day of my life. But then if none of that had happened and I wasn't so skinned, I wouldn't have turned up and done the awkward Q&As in the morning. I wouldn't have made the videos. I'd come home from fitness first at 3pm, uh, which I wasn't allowed to do. And I didn't have a camera. I didn't have editing software. And my MacBook was so old and shit that it couldn't even work without a cable. iMovie wouldn't open in it. So my first, up until 50,000 followers from three, were all live videos. So I had a topic that I would think of on the way home. And I would press live. And I was like, I have to make this video good or I'm not going to make enough money to say us. That was the whole first oh 50,000 followers. Like every single video from January 14th, 2017 to May uh, 2017 were all lives because I couldn't afford a camera. And that was a lot of pressure. Like they had to be rants so like three minutes long. I the aloe vera no video, idea about that. The aloe vera video was the first video I ever did that I edited. And that one. I had to go to the shops and be like, I need a new laptop and I need a DSLR. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And I came back and I'm there like trying to edit, like teaching myself how to do it. How much were you shitting yourself doing those at the time? Yeah, same. Like, I, I would be confident about something. I just have to rant. But then as I'm ranting in like a three-minute video about something or getting the whiteboard out and using the whiteboard, I can see the amount of likes 
And like sometimes I went in on something, it'd be like, like populating. I'd be like, oh, they like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then at the end, at, towards the end, I'd be like, if you like that, please share it. Boom. And then I just sit back. And then I just see this video just starting to go like viral, which is why when Facebook got shut down, I was so fucked because that was my way of like building my following. Yeah, completely. So, yeah. I think as well, like from what you said there, that might in a weird way be quite comforting to new PTs as well, because obviously the fitness industry is hella saturated now. There's a lot going on. And sometimes people think, oh, being a personal trainer is so easy. I can just like dive in head first and get my qualifications in six weeks. Boom, I can make 10 grand a month. And it's not that. And I think it's important that people establish that there is a difference between, you know, how you build it up. And sometimes it doesn't always start off and you, you've got to fail, essentially. Not that you essentially failed. Oh, but no, you had I did. To, I never yeah, went above you six hours had a week. Approach, yeah, you had, to, you had to go through a certain amount of failure. Like we've done it, I've done it. And people look at us now and they're like, they've obviously never failed. They've obviously never been through that. So you telling people that story, they might be like, okay, cool. Like, do you get what I mean? It's a whole like iceberg theory, isn't it? That people yeah. only see yeah, yeah, yeah. so much and then see all the, the groundwork mm. that's gone in previously and the story that comes before it. Do you think as, I mean, you have some pretty strong opinions on on some things and I think that's obviously potentially why you get hostility thrown at you sometimes. Do you think that you have become more comfortable um, being wrong? Not that saying that you are wrong with, with, with some of your opinions, but there's always like, we can always um, self-develop, we can always learn more before like you put something out. And I think that's why a lot of people don't put stuff out because they feel like they don't know enough or they're going to get some kind of criticism as a backlash from that. And I think that's why some people struggle to put stuff out. Do you think that's been one of the things that you potentially learned early on was just to become comfortable sometimes with being wrong? Because I think all of us in general in society, we just don't learn as children how to lose. Yeah, even, even this week. So I did a video about the menstrual cycle and the experiences I've had with my clientele on it. And then Amelia Thompson did one saying, actually, research shows that women are weaker after their period, not before. And I said, someone messaged me and goes, she's saying you're wrong. I go, she's saying that's what the research says. I'm saying in my experience. I go, even in her post, she goes, it's different between people. So I never said objectively this, I'm never going to tell a woman how she's going to feel on yeah. her period. <laughs> and I said to the woman, I was, she came to me with a bit of a hostile tone. She was like, well, she says this, she say this. And I was like, well, the reason my message resonated was because so many people agreed with what I said. The reason her post is resonating with people is because so many people resonate with what she said. I said like, even if I am wrong, I put my hand up and go, well, that's my experience. And I'm not a doctor or uh, with other things that I've been potentially wrong about. Like I actually put in conversations more. I could be wrong. Like, um, you know, I did some tweets this week having a bit of fun with it. I was like saying something like, you know, I don't think this is fair, but I could be wrong. I'm not saying, not everything I say, especially things I put on Twitter come from a place of objectivity. I don't think that COVID rates are going to soar that much more when we go full open next week. I could be wrong with this, but I don't think people are really adhering to the lockdown rules as it is. Mm. And someone's like, I said, I can't wait for restaurants for people not to have to wear a mask when they go to the toilet. People were like, but James, the science has showed that being two meters apart. I was like, guys, everyone's going to a fucking house party after a night out yeah. with windows closed. So there's no air ventilation, right? You've got 30 cunts breathing in the same room after being out and separated on tables. People are necking on, on hinge dates or whatever. I was like, people think these lockdowns 
break the chains between infectious people. They're, I don't think they do. I could be wrong. And like that freedom to say things, people are almost shocked by it. They're like, what does he mean? Ugh. How does he, how can he say he could be wrong? You're supposed to be. Not everything comes from a place of objectivity. And now mm-hmm. I get so much more enjoyment now coming from a place of, uh, you know, subjectivity and from, you know, my first book, not a diet book in that, there are some things where some people could come along in a few years' time and go, you were wrong on that. Yeah. How sweet. But with not a life coach, there's nothing there. That's all anecdotal. Someone can't go, well, that 15-minute date idea is rubbish. Well, no, that's my opinion. Yeah. You, know, you can take my opinion or whatever. And I certainly enjoy and talking about uh, situations and conversations that aren't so objective because then you don't have a wrong or a mm-hmm. right. It's how people feel and perceive with it. And again, a reason that I love uh, the talk I'm about to do on this tour. You guys coming along to Manchester. Mm-hmm. It all comes from personal experience, which is liberating. Because for once in my life, I haven't got to worry about someone kicking the door down and yeah. going, you're wrong. Yeah. I'm like, well, it went all right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the biggest worry for like, not just PTs, but people in general, putting content up is that they're going to be shot down by someone else. And there's always going to be someone, like we spoke about before, we even turned the podcast on about someone who's coming on something and telling you the certain terminology to use. And I think people end up just sitting on the fence with stuff and never have an opinion because they're so worried about the backlash they're going to get from from other people. And they never get to put their own voice out to be heard. This is it with that. the, with the uh, even like Piers Morgan getting slammed for the Meghan Markle thing. In the Twitter vote, it went out. Most people agreed with him. Substantially more percent. Mm. It was like 80% of people agreed with him, but they're not going to speak up. You only hear from the people that are in the, virtu- the virtual side, the uh, virtuous side, who were like, that's racist, that's bigotry, that's misogyny they're the ones you hear because they're, there's a certain amount of virtue that goes with people doing that and again with the Laurel Hobart situation of the transgender woman competing in the Olympics when I put that video out I was like oh, I'm going to get fucking slammed on this I've never in my whole life had a video with such a positive feedback I was like whoa my idea of what the public's perception of that situation was so skewed because no one was saying anything mm. But now I actually take a lot of pleasure in thinking, what are my mum and dad saying in their front room behind closed doors? I imagine my mum and dad with the newspaper and my mum going, Jeff, that isn't right. He shouldn't be able, oh, I mean, she shouldn't be able to do that. And I imagine that going on. Yeah. Never in a million years my parents tweet that. But almost those conversations don't exist. But they do exist. They are happening. But they don't exist online anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, like, and again, like you say about not being able to be wrong, right? Pronouns are now mandatory to be correct in Canada or like legal legislation it's like illegal to get someone's pronoun wrong by no not in a million years would I ever intentionally misgender someone mm-hmm. if I saw that there was uh, you know a transgender woman born a man in front of me I would not I would, I would fully respect their decision and try and appropriately gender them to who I perceive them to be but if I make a mistake I should be allowed to make a mistake and they should be allowed to correct me mm. go no sorry I'm a female and I go, I'm incredibly sorry. I'd be very polite about it. I'm a polite person. But we've almost lost the ability to be incorrect in the first place. You know, This is why so many people don't say anything though because of cancel culture and because they're so scared to be wrong that they just won't say anything altogether and open their mouth about it. And I think that's a difficult thing because people pick up things from social media and think like, oh, everyone's against me. But like 20% of the UK is on Twitter and most of the people aren't even using it anyway. It's a very strange platform, isn't it? So having an opinion from there and then just basing yourself on that 
can be pretty, pretty detrimental as well. So I think you've got to be careful with that. But we obviously had Alex on the podcast, didn't we? And we started the podcast by saying, we will probably fuck up. We will probably say something that is incorrect. And like, this is the point in having you here to kind of have that conversation so that other people can hear it and learn something. Because if we don't openly talk about it, no one's ever going to fucking know. And if you don't allow people to fuck up, how can we, how can we ever learn from that? We're living in a world now where ignorance is almost like, the, it's the disappearance of ignorance. Like we're not allowed to not know about anything anymore. And even when someone accused me of being like transphobic or, you know, I don't understand a huge amount about what's going on, what isn't going on. We don't get taught this. I didn't get taught that at school. And people go, go educate yourself. Mm. Like, I'm trying to learn. And funnily enough, I was getting torn down by someone on Twitter. And I said, what, will you come on the podcast? She said, no. And I was like, well, how you're saying get educated. I'm asking for help. I'm asking for a grown up discussion. You're saying no. Yeah. And it's crazy how many conversations just then would go educate yourself. You know, all right, teach me. No, just there to scrutinize. And I think that people, my opinion with this kind of woke existence at the moment is that a lot of people of low status and low authoritarian manner, people have gone their whole lives without being able to tell people what to do. And that's not a bad thing. We need people like that. But now they've got hold of the first trend in essence that they can now step in on Twitter and social media and correct people, make them conform to their ideologies. You must call this person this. You must do this. You must be cancelled. And we're giving a strange amount of power, not really real power, to people that now have never had it before. And I think they're getting very power hungry. And that's where I think this justice warrior movement's coming from. People that can't even bark an order to anyone at work now having a keyboard in the internet. Yeah. I think there's that certain element of it though, like how many, how many of those like scenarios so should we speak, should we talk about? I think there was one that was, and again, we're talking about it now, so we're bringing it up. There was one, I think it was a train conductor who said like, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and someone took offense by that and then reported this to the train line. It was all over the place. And it's they that, got sued didn't they? Yeah. The yeah. train company um, got sued. That, that, I think it's called like the, this, like the Snow White effect in regards like if, if we're here talking about it now, we give it light and it's talked about. And like when Lab Bible post stuff and then you get in the thread, there's hundreds of thousands of people talking about it who potentially never would have even known about it if it hadn't been brought to the media. And we sometimes give it more of a voice potentially than it needed. I think it's also something where people do want to be enlightened and educated. And I think that situations like this, I actually think put a really bad light on, ironically put a bad light on the non-binary community mm. because I'm sure there are a lot of people that are non-binary who see that and go, oh my God, you know, like what's this person doing? This person is not reflecting, you know, our community correctly. And I actually think you probably see that a lot in, in all of the LGBTQ plus uh, kind of communities where you kind of get that one person who, you know, I'm not even sure I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong of that person that was non-binary, that could just be someone who's just after, you know, oh, I'm now non-binary. Let's, let's watch the world burn, you know, like yeah. in Batman. Some people <laughs> just want to watch the world burn. And like, if, if someone has genuinely taken offense from good morning, ladies and gentlemen, I genuinely do see a problem in that. You know, you're, you're asking long-held traditions. That person's probably been conducting and greeting people on train politely, may I add, 20, 30 years. Mm. And now because of someone's ideological change in how they perceive themselves in the current politics that surrounds it. People are now to change the rules for them. And although I, I completely can empathize with the rationale behind it, the scrutiny should not 
be fired back to the person. I always say to people, like with my content, even if you get offended by it, whatever, what do you think my motive is? What do you think my motive is for that? Yeah, I called you a cunt, but I wanted your attention so I can help you. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the only way I make money is two books and a, an academy that trains people. All of which, if you really fucking hate it, I'll refund you. So you're not out of pocket. Cool. So we've got those things. That conductor coming on the train, what was his motive? Was it to offend someone? Was it to disregard someone's position of being non-binary? He was trying to fucking greet people politely on a train to make their morning that bit more pleasant. I, nothing like, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Can I see your tickets, please? Or have a great fucking day. What a lovely bloke. And he's facing scrutiny and that kills me. I think that's what you've got to look at as well. Like, what is the motive behind some, what someone said or how someone said it? Like, through criminal law for years, we've had mens rea. And like, what was the purpose of someone doing stuff and committing the crime? And if someone's doing it out of um, just simply not understanding or, or they've done it by mistake, then yeah, th- that needs to be learned from. But I don't think we should just be hell-bent on going after people just because they've they've made a mistake because it's not going to help anyone. And, and that's why, again, more people won't talk about that subject. And the same with, I think I messaged you about the the Laura Hubbard post. I think a lot of people within the, the trans community as well, it, it, I don't think it will help that community because it's going to be, you've already seen there's loads and loads of negative that's just around it. And at the same time, I, I feel for her as well because it's not, it's not really about her as a person. She's done nothing wrong. She should compete in a sport that she wants to compete in. And and that sometimes becomes the issue because then people just personally attack her instead of having conflict with the rules and regulations that have been kind of muddled by the Olympics. And as again, well. the fact that they haven't considered creating a trans category in the Olympics, the fact they haven't done that means that there will be more, I believe, and I could be wrong, more hostility towards trans populations. And when I stood up and put my hand up and go, I don't agree with this. I think you should have your own division. I'm doing so to actually try and protect their community. My motive was to do that, to say to people, hey, by the way, she's not done anything wrong. I don't think this should be happening. I believe a lot of you don't think it should be happening. I'd love to see the half million views that got to be seen by the committees and the people that be to change this and create a new division. Because ultimately, if this is the first domino of many, every domino that falls where a cisgender athlete loses their position to a trans athlete, I believe potentially the public perception of that community could be negated. And as someone said that out loud before, I'm not sure because then someone's just going to call me transphobic. And, you know, I've been called transphobic hundreds of times. There's uh, one guy on Twitter who is obsessed with me. I blocked him and he's still following and finding my tweets to comment on all of them. He's like, James is a transphobe. I was like, well, actually, mate, my, my initial discussion, my motive behind that was to ensure that there's not more hostility towards those populations and communities that needs to be. But ideally, I just want everyone to get on, get along well. You know, there is chat shit, get banged, but ultimately that's to create a peaceful community. Yeah. The reason that I go after the Danielle Lloyds and the V Shreds and all of this is because I want a happy community of people that are all getting what they pay for. And even when people are really mean, it's not like I'm attacking innocent people for no reason. There's always a motive. Mm, 100%. I think within sport as well, it's a it's a difficult one. I don't know what the direction is going to go. It's obviously very muddled at the moment because we've seen stuff about the, the sprints as well. We're smoking cannabis, was it? And that came up. But there's this huge performance differences when it comes to to female. It's like if you were to swim against uh, a, a trans athlete who'd gone from male to female, you've seen the differences in the speeds and time between those two categories. It'd just be impossible to compete with. And we yeah, see, we see it was. It was I, I'm also see, you know, with like sports, 
like weightlifting or boxing, you know, like a more like an aggressive sport, I would be terrified if I had to fight against a guy who transitioned into a woman because I'd be like, absolutely not. Like, I just, I think that's more so because we did the research into it with the aggression side of like yeah, guys um, uh, in comparison to like me. Yeah. More testosterone. Obviously, we did speak about this really heavily with Alex in terms of when, because Alex had transgendered when he was 11. You know, he hadn't even hit puberty. So that's a very different situation, isn't it? Whereas it was more so the conversation if you're like your age or your age and then Laurel, then you were to do it. Laurel had broken junior records in weightlifting before transition. I think it was yeah. 135 yeah. kilogram snatch. 135 kilogram snatch. I'd get a sore back deadlifting that. <laughs> <laughs> and again, right, I've been on steroids before. I have an unfair advantage over other bodybuilders because I've been on steroids before. Even though that testosterone is not in my system anymore, objectively, if we were to compete and have to um, build muscle, do a cut and bulk, I'd, I'd supersede them. Mm-hmm. I haven't taken steroids in years. Now, living a life of decades with testosterone and then just lowering it doesn't really give you that much of an advantage. And, you know, even the testosterone in which it's lowered to is probably the same as a dude competing anyway, you know, mm-hmm. and in a physique comp anyway. But yeah, these, these kind of things there is, it's such a complex, but also not complex. There've been manipulations that have occurred. And for that reason, if Sonny got a ban from the Olympics for having a trace of Osterine, but yet someone else can have 35 years of a male's amount of testosterone. It's kind of like, where are we going? Are we leaning towards politics? And Castor Semenya, who had to have testosterone lowering agents, that is bullshit as well because there should not be a cap on someone's natural production of testosterone. And over the years, the reason we have the Olympics, and I hate to use the word like freaks, but genetic freaks that we have amongst us, whenever I see a dude who's above six foot five, good looking and stacked, I'm like, bro, you are you're a beast. Yeah. You know, like I see him in jiu-jitsu. I'm like, you're a good looking motherfucker. Mm. But I, I've got like a man crush on him. I'm like, bro, you've got like <laughs> Thor's genetics. You're, I'm real. And like in rugby, you find those like genetic freaks, the guys that can weigh 130 kilograms, but run 11 second, 100 meters. Aleem is a bit like that though, isn't he as well? He's exactly like that. And seeing someone like that, we should applaud that. We should celebrate that. And when I see Aleem, like doing whatever he's doing, I, I love it. And the Olympics should be where we find these people. And we put forward, I always say, is it in Troy, the film where Brad Pitt has to go out and fight that massive guy? He is, yeah. And they're like, you know, let's, let's have our two best guys go against each other. That's to me what the Olympics yeah. is. Mm. Casta Semenya should be representing her country and I'm not calling her a freak. But like, we should be proud of that. We should be like, yes, I love the fact that you've got very high testosterone for a woman and I want to see you get gold. I want to see you beat our British athletes because if you're better than that person, you're better than that person. The fact that they should be taking lowering agents, I think, is is bullshit. But then for the um, other lady with marijuana, unfortunately, the rules are the rules. And I appreciate that in her state, it was legal. I actually swung both ways with this. At first, I was like, that's bullshit. Then I was like, although she lives in a state in America where it's legal, she's competing against a British athlete who might not be able to smoke weed. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can't get the, um, you know, uh, therapeutic effects. Can't get the recovery effects. Can't do that. Even though it was legal where she did it, the rules still stipulate you can't take it. And there's no way as an athlete that you can be at that level and not know that. When she And I completely empathize with the personal situation she was having. But when you spark up a joint, 
you know that you are taking an illegal substance as an athlete. You know that that is going to... Well, doping is doping. Like even from my level of swimming, I got drug tested when I was 15 after my competitions. Drop your costume, we in a park, get sent off. We couldn't take Sudafed, we couldn't take Lemsip, let alone getting a joint out. Like you, that's that was the thing with me. I feel like when you're that high up in sport, it is so strict. Like you get random drug tests coming to your house. So, because I swung both ways with that because I was just a bit like, you know what you're you're doing, unfortunately. And as much as it's fucking awful for her, like it's, it's horrible, I get it. But doping is doping. Yeah. And you can't avoid that at that high level sport. You chose to put yourself in that position where you're an elite athlete and you, in the Olympics, you can't, you can't take those drugs. And going back to the genetics thing that you spoke about before, because this is something that I wanted to uh, discuss. This isn't like a confrontational thing because I absolutely agree with everything you say. Um, but it's always to do with like, I have super fucking great genetics for having a six pack. Quite clearly, always have had them since I was super young. And I, obviously when I was five years old, I didn't know I would then be a public figure where having a six pack, and I say this to so many people, I get more hate from people and get trolled for having that now because, and it was it was on one of your posts as well, because I always was like, oh my God, yay, genetics, you mentioned it. And I got so like heavily trolled that I had to come off Instagram because it's it's trying to understand that, yeah, I probably more so am on that side of being a genetic freak because I can't explain to you why I have them. Yeah, I eat well, I'm active, blah, 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 blah. But that's probably not going to get you looking exactly like me. I openly admit to you, because I ended up doing a post in it last week saying, I'm sick and tired of these questions and I find it so awkward when people ask me personally, because that's never going to change for me. I'm always, always going to, I'll be fucking pregnant and there'll be abs on either side. Like that shit is not going to change. That that is just not going to change for me. So I said in my caption, I was like, look, I find it fucking so awkward because I hate talking about having a six pack. I'd rather fucking not. It would, my life would actually be easier on Instagram if I didn't, because I wouldn't get all the questions about like your body fat percentage and things like that. And I, I try to make the point of people that if you like looked at like my physique, for example, yeah, I don't stuff fat up here, but I do on my legs. I've got big thighs, I've got big glutes. And I kind of praise you a lot for the posts that you put out where you say women shouldn't strive for a six pack because I still agree with it now. It's not that healthy unless you are a genetic freak. But someone's going to slam us for using the word freak. So my, my kind of theory of this is be like a snippet for you to use and I could be wrong. I think that women sit on a, on a scale of androgenic profiles of how many free-flowing kind of androgens or levels of testosterone they have. I don't fully understand different types of testosterone and free tests, whatever. And I think the women always sit on this kind of spectrum. And I think that those androgenic profiles play into their personalities as well. And this again is me speculating. This isn't objective. But most women that work in jobs of assertiveness, bosses, and like, you know, you see boss bitches, like wearing gold Daytonas and that. They're often well-trained women that have got quite good amounts of muscle. And I think it's because they're androgenic profiles. So CrossFit over the years, 30 women join a box. One of them comes out stacked after a year of training. I think that never have we had so many sports that have found women with high androgenic profiles. 
And everyone always talks about them because I did CrossFit for a while. They're like, Jenny, she used to do cardio before. She used to be a runner. Now she's like, boom, she's like, turf games, doing whatever, doing whatever. I think that there's an incredibly small top echelon of, of women that have got impeccable genetics from an androgenic standpoint for sport, for resistance training. And I think you're mm. one of them. And the reason being is as well, you've got very good back development. From so, swimming. Yeah. But I think, have you, I don't think, I think it could be from swimming. But I think you excelled so much and became a swimmer because of your androgenic profile. Yeah. I mean, from, I, from the age of like three or four, I literally had little biceps. Like, was this, when was my sister didn't? So I don't know in terms of that aspect, but I was always a small, little, muscly human. So I from think- From like a really young age. I think your sport picked you and you didn't pick your sport so much. I think that when you were thrown in the water with that physique, you dominated, therefore mm. loved it, therefore stuck with it. Whereas I played rugby because I was big, broad and heavy and uh, I can run for 80 minutes. Yeah. I'm not big, broad and heavy because I played for 80 mm. minutes. So I'm a big believer that people don't pick their sports, their sports pick them. I think that if you get 100 women to do CrossFit, 30 of them will love it. And two of them will end up competing in like nationals. And so with these androgenic profiles, because the same goes in women's attraction towards men, I believe this is speculation again. Men with higher androgenic profiles uh, often have bigger developed traps and delts. And the reason being is that's where you have the highest amount of androgen receptors. So when dudes go on steroids, it's the first two places to blow up. But women find that really sexy because androgenic profiles in men is very much sought after by women in sexual attraction. That's why a lot of women found Bane sexy in Batman, even though he's wearing a fucking mask. <laughs> also part of like the androgenic debate is hair loss in males. Some women really like uh, like balding pattern. You've got it's Jason Statham, you've got The Rock, you've got Bruce Willis as these hyper masculine yeah. kind of profiles. So you've got these like androgenic profiles in men um, deep voice, facial hair, all of these things that people are into. I was thinking of androgenic profiles in women that really kind of separate them from the sport. And getting to my point, when I tell people not to strive for a six pack, I'm not talking to the top echelon of androgenic females. I'm not talking to the athletes and they're not listening. Mm. I'm talking to the women who do not have the physical capabilities to sustain that as an athlete. And that's probably why, unfortunately, they're not an athlete, never have been, and never will be a high level athlete. And so many times in fitness, we have to remind people they're not athletes. And they go, can I have a rest day? Well, yeah, because you're not an athlete. Can yeah. I have a day off? Can I go drinking? Yeah, because you're not an athlete. Can I go to my friend's stag do? Yeah, because you're not an athlete. They need reminding they're not athletes. The other thing that goes on is with um, women and growth hormone. So again, could be speculation. Men with high levels of growth hormone have a bigger shoulder to waist ratio. And often they have big foreheads and big jaws. And if you look in cartoon depictions of manly men, Got big foreheads, big jaws, big shoulders, and small waists. Yeah, so he's like he's the one with like the blonde hair, like that. Johnny Bravo, Johnny yeah, Bravo, him. <laughs> That's literally him. So like when um, well, you're probably getting a lot of scrutiny because you are in this top echelon of of, androgen- of androgens, and mm. for some people, they there's never been a perfect, more of a perfect storm for you to be an athlete or to be a fitness trainer or to be doing what you do for a living. It's almost like a perfect storm of good luck and yeah. hard work. Mm-hmm. because I have a feeling that if I was to take your persona and put it in another child growing up with not the androgen profile, she probably would hate it to me. Yeah. She might become a runner because she didn't respond to weight training. Yeah. I think most runners are people that don't respond to weight training. Mm. And like, it's crazy. If you went to the gym for two years and never gained muscle, you would end up through process of elimination probably doing something cardio-based like rowing or running. Mm. So whenever I see people in these 
And they go, oh, he's not got much muscle. It's probably why he runs in rows. Yeah. The same with bodybuilding as Very well. People, people, someone asked, asked me on a story yesterday why I'd, I'd said I'd never do a show again because I did one and then never did one ever again. And it's just because I'm not genetically built to be able to win shows. Like I've got Carlos like Pinocchio, no chest, and then massive biceps. So it looks stupid. Like I still hold muscle tissue, but it's not proportionate and it's not like what would be deemed genetically relevant for bodybuilding. And there's a lot of people you can say that that's straight away when like, oh, I'm going to do shows, I'm going to do this. And it's like, you're probably going to do shit. And that's not to disempower people from from trying and doing and experiencing it. But there's a there's a genetic category of people you can spot and go straight away and go, yeah, he's yeah. going to be sick. Yeah, he's going to be sick. Like Calvin, Calvin Von Moga, his genetic profile before he got on the gear, he was a dreamy motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> he just hasn't got the head for it though, has he? Yeah, like um, it's, yeah, yeah. It's got a mullet though. <laughs> <laughs> like for myself, like I spent so many years trying to conform to what I thought I needed to be. And then the last probably five years, I was like, I genetically am so lean on my limbs. And I never once realized that when I was younger. I was so focused on having a six pack and I realized, hold on. I'm actually blessed in some ways having all my fat on my stomach because in a vest, I look like a real athlete. <laughs> when I take it off, they're like, oh, it's a bit soft around the middle. But I've come to actually love that. I've also realized that I can lose fat very easy, but when I do get lean, it makes me very irritable, very grumpy, and my performance is fucked. Yeah. I got down, I, I'm walking around now today, I was 95.8 when I woke up. I got down to 89 from my last, one of my last jiu-jitsu comps. I looked great. I could not compete for shit. I gassed out two minutes into a six minute round and got bitched. I like, I can't actually be a happy version of myself below 93 kilograms. Mm. And it took me 30 years to realize that. And like, again, sometimes I have to look at myself and go, you're not a physique athlete. You know, and I think it's so important that we all have these individual identities to us rather than trying to conform to this, you know, epitome of Barbie and Ken. And like, for you, that's going to be the six pack. And a lot of people are going to struggle to, to get to terms with that. A lot of people are going to see me and go, he's a bit fat for a PT. And I'm just going to have to come to terms with that. Mm. Like we're sitting on different spectrums of people's understanding of what we should look like. But ultimately we're very unique. And yeah. for every, however many people that try and criticize you, there are going to be so many people that idealize you. But again, your biggest fans out there aren't commenting on every photo going, you're killing it. You're my inspiration. They sometimes do. But the comments never give a fair depiction of how people truly think. Like on TikTok as well, 4 million views on a video. I don't think you understand how many people that is and how long. I'm, to, for me to have a video talking to camera to get 4 million views, I'm still five years away from that. Mm. And when you see 25 comments taking the piss out of your physique, you cannot fathom what 25 is out of 4 million. Mm. I don't think our brains can do it. No, they can't. Yeah. As a statistic, and even if I said it's 0.0001, you can't compute that. I don't think we can compute what a billion is or what a million is. We can't compute what a hundred thousand is. To think about your following, you're talking of stacks of Twickenham stadiums full to the brink on top of each other with you in the middle. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like yeah. the, the, the realization, <laughs> and if you were to go out there and do your thing in front of that many people, are you surprised that 16 of them fucking hated it? Yeah, literally. 16 out of yeah. <laughs> And like, we, it's almost like we're really bad mathematicians. And again, again, with the vaccine stuff, there are some horror stories about the vaccinations of people that are becoming, you know, hurt and inflicted by the vaccine. And I completely empathize. There's been some tragic deaths this week. But guys, this was basic statistics. If one in a thousand people are to, you know, or one in 10,000 people one in a hundred thousand people 
are to die from the vaccine. We kind of already knew that going into this. But unfortunately, that's a, tr- that's a much lower death rate than what COVID was. And it's also, at the same time, much better for the kind of herd immunity that we're all aiming for. But Sorry, it's my stomach. <laughs> Don't worry, mate. We're going for some food after this. So. Yeah, mine is as well. If you think about the tens of millions of people that have been vaccinated, unfortunately, the math stipulates that there should be 20, 30, 40 people, maybe more, who are going to die. Mm-hmm. But when you have 40 tragic stories of wives, husbands, mothers in front of you, it's, you, you completely disregard 70 million people vaccinated. Hundreds of tens of thousands aren't going to be suffering from long COVID or, you know, completely fucked. Our inability to understand complex maths is what really fucks us as a society. Mm. And, you know, that's not to disregard or to be insensitive to the vaccine deaths. But I always think to people as well, like, World War II, completely different scenario. But the, the, almost the battle that you had to go against and the amount of loss that you were going to get to keep your freedoms and all of this stuff, it's never been, social media has never been such a harsh reality for these small percentages to really hit home so much. Because on social media, you get to see the person, you get to see the husband's reaction, you get to see the kids that are left at home. Same with the comments. It's a tiny percentage of something against you. You have them put on a platter in front of you in chronological order. Mm. Boom, 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 taking the piss. And it, unless you can understand the statistics of views, comments, likes, and people that support you and don't say anything versus people that hate you and say everything, it's very difficult for people to get their head around it. Yeah, it's it's I like agree. it's a like human psychology though, isn't it? It's what when there's like an emotional attachment to something and with with basic human psychology, we always look for the negative in in any sort of experience as well. And especially like when it comes to to comparisons as human beings, we do it with everything, not just like in the fitness industry, we do it with like when you pull up at the lights next to someone else's car, a dude has got a nice car, or you, you walk walk past someone else's house who's got a, a big gaff and you're like that's sick, and then you start comparing it to what to what you've got. And I think that's what it's so difficult and it was it was difficult for me to come to terms with it at first in the fitness industry and I think that's what drove me to or contributed to me having an eating disorder is because I couldn't get over the fact that people really didn't give a shit like what body fat percentage it was or how big it was it was only like years and years on I really realised that where I could live life and be a lot happier but because the comparisons were there in the first place it drove me to that point because I based everything on like where my body fat levels were, how much muscle I had, and or compared to this person, how much I had, and compared to this person, how much I had. And I think the good, I don't know if you've noticed it more and more, but I think since TikTok especially come in, the way that content works on Instagram is a lot, lot better in regards to like what's pushed out. Because it used to be the swipe videos, people looking sick oh, they training, do, they do just shit went now. out everywhere. <laughs> and the people who used to push those out don't get as much engagement anymore. It's it's a lot different kind of content that seems to get pushed out a lot more. The content that, as human beings, we can relate to and 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 draw some some value away from just rolling going, yeah, you're sick. It looks great. Yeah, and I think I think that that part of it is is something that is potentially a positive change in the way that it's moving. Yeah, it's um. I think that social media always paints a really. You have to be ready for the depiction of reality to be hugely altered when you go on social media, especially when looking at your own content, especially when you, you not narcissism isn't the right word, but it is in the same respect. We are our brands. We are the identities of how our businesses operate. We don't sell a product. Our products is often ourself. So there has to be a certain amount of self-love towards that product. And if you don't believe in yourself and love that product and love yourself, 
then you're not going to be very good in business. So you need to hold yourself in high regard and to see the comments. It's almost like someone attacking your child. Like someone says something horrible about your child, you take it personally. This is one step closer to, you know, the the attachment is, is you. And I think it's always going to be incredibly difficult. But as long as you kind of keep in mind the ability to disarm what is coming towards you, because if you're going to go seeking it, you're going to get offended. You're going to get upset. But yeah, I think social media... It's one of those places I don't think it's going to change for a very long time. I think that unfortunately as well, a lot of people in the UK and outside the UK probably just don't have great lives at the moment. And again, hot, cold empathy gap for us people who are, the more we enjoy our lives, the more it must rub these people the wrong way. And I'm sure we all empathize with that. We wouldn't want anyone in the UK to have a bad life, but there's not a lot we can do about it. And um, yeah, unfortunately, there are always going to be people in corners of the country who've got nothing better to do than troll. There's only so much you can prepare. I thought there was no like we had this conversation that we on the podcast was it last week or the week before, especially in terms like self development, and for some people like the burden of it. Like, when do you really not stop but get that balance between trying to self develop and just living your life in the moment? Because I think a lot of people get caught. I think we've been caught up in that before, haven't we? As well, well. it's that whole idea of like you buy ten books because you think you're going to be really knowledgeable, but you don't read a single book. You're kind of very much stuck in motion. You're not taking action. You think you constantly have to read books. You constantly have to research rather than just living and getting on with it and moving forward. You get stuck in this motion of, I have to self-develop. I have to be better in every single way. Like, unfortunately, you don't move forward at all. I mean, I did it. Jesus Christ, you know, you used to buy like 10 self-development books. I used to look at them like, yeah, I'm self-developing. Yeah. And obviously you're not. It's, it's, it's that like never-ending treadmill of, 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 that you're on of just self-development. And can, I suppose like, like, do you think you can truly be happy and always looking to self-develop? So this is why I'm so grateful to have jiu-jitsu. Because every time we go, I learn something. Every time. Like no matter what. Or it reminds me of something. And all I need to do is turn up on the mats. That's it. And something will go wrong, something will go right. And you can't really, although skills are perishable, which is another crazy saying that I heard on a podcast. Skills are perishable. So. I like that. Um, whenever I go out, I always have that. And I actually put Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as like the nucleus of my daily life. And as long as I can grow doing that and become better at that, then even if I'm not developing in my business or my understanding of things or books, that's fine. And mm-hmm. I'm getting a workout at the same time. Whereas when you guys are training, a lot of the time you're just paying your dues. You're mm-hmm. not actually developing. Same in rugby. When I was playing rugby, I was just turning up and trying to do my best. I wasn't developing. And then when I trained for three, six months and someone puts a stripe on your belt, you're like, oh, you're like, yeah. oh my God. So I'm getting closer to the next belt. It's like being a child again. And <clears throat> even sometimes I just take happiness from knowing that that's developing. And like getting that belt, purple belt, a few months ago, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I was like, all that work paid off. People sitting on my head, ripping my arms off twisting my knees out I was like it's all worth it it's all worth it so like I think that anyone you speak to that does Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is fanatic about it because that like treadmill of self-development is going to go on forever and a lot of black belts say it's just begun a black belt when you get that now now you've got no one else holding you accountable to a belt promotion you'll wear that belt for the rest of your life so you've now got to go out and do the work and um, there's so many like avenues of, of how that sport develops I'm so glad that if I never, if I don't pick up a book for the next five years, I can still do that every day. Mm-hmm. I like that. And that's what's, what's great. We, well, I've never really indulged in any contact sports. Well, not contact sports, but like martial arts or anything. 
I'd like to, but I'm scared of getting injured. Like we had the conversation before. Um, but within that podcast that we had last week, we were talking about Welsh on this like deepish topic. Like your greater self meaning in life. And I think it's probably like quite a good thing for us to to finish on and, and potentially what you see see yours as at the moment. I've already seen a glimpse of it today of I don't know we joked about but the, the guy who came over to you and spoke in the the coffee shop before. Like for you to be able to go to other places wherever that is in the world and have someone come up to you and and, and you've had an impact on on them, whether it's like a book or like a podcast we could speak about before. There can't be much better feeling than that. Yeah, it's it's definitely to me again, I I still I'm more shocked that people have read it. When I wrote the book, I didn't ever write it thinking it was gonna get read by hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> it was just a project. And so I only ever saw it as a project. Then when I recorded the audiobook, I was like, oh fuck, people are gonna listen to this. So I still stay very removed from the books. People are like, I don't Duran says this to me all the time. We meet someone, they go, What'd you do? He goes, personal trainer. He goes, Tell them you've written some books. I'm like, oh yeah, I've written some books. I, in my mind, it's like, it baffles me that people are out there reading it. Like, I haven't even seen the full breakdown of the royalties of how many books we've sold. That's Luke's job. He's probably doing it to protect my ego. But when I actually think about more purpose in life, this, this could come across the wrong way. It's not always just about helping the people I've not met. It's about helping the people I have met and they're in my life at the moment. So like, my friends, my family, like my close-knit group, there's nothing better than being able to like support the 10 people closest to me. That might sound like quite selfish, but whenever I think about meaning purpose or whenever I'm like tired on the sofa, I'm like, oh my God, I'm fucked. I'm not always thinking about the people that I don't know that I didn't think read my book. I'm thinking about my sister, her kid, uh, my parents' mortgage. I'm thinking about Luke, his kid, his wife. I'm thinking about like, even some of my friends in Oz, they're like about to get a bank loan for a car. I'm like, no, no, let me lend you the money. Like, and even paying off a mate's credit card debt or buying my mate a van where he pays me back like 50 quid a week for the next five, 10 years. Those are the things that like give me the purpose. That's when I feel it. Like, I love every interaction I have with anyone that I meet in the street, but that interaction to me is very weird. It is still very weird. That guy saying James Smith, I'm like, this is <laughs> <Yes>. weird. <laughs> but then, I take like a lot of happiness from the interactions that aren't weird, being able to help people around me. So I think the purpose is more of an internal one than an external one. Oh, that's lovely. I agree. It's lovely. I mean, I'm sure you feel the same. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big, I've spoken to you about before, I won't speak about about yours because you'll probably give it away. One of of those big, I suppose it must be so rewarding because you've done that, is is for me in the future. Like when I first started my business, my, my, my dad didn't have a lot of money, but he invested in me of what I was doing because he believed in what I was doing so to be able to like do something like that buy my dad a car would be the dream the dream for me Not that's not my be all and end all but that would be a nice kind of in the timeline of things that I'd like to do which would give me that self-fulfillment that would be a big one I know it wasn't too, so long ago that you yeah so um, when I got back from Australia my dad had a Range Rover before it was like second hand but still to have a Range Rover is still pretty fucking good but when it came to the end of the finance, he was like, no, it's not worth that. He's like, I'm not paying Range Rover or whatever it is that much money. So he gave it back. And um, so when I got back to Australia, from Australia, I had two big cases and my dad only had the Mini. I got him a Mini before. So he's like, I'll come get you, son. Go, Where are you going to come get me? And he goes, I've rented a van. So he got one of those like enterprise rentals, oh. like fucking vans. <laughs> so he came to pick me up from the airport in this rented van. And I was like, dad, I could have just got a new Excel. 
But to him, it was the principle of coming to get me from it. So when he came to pick me up, when he wasn't looking, I took a picture of it, sent it to Luke, my manager. He goes, we'll sort that out. We'll sort that out. So yeah. Um, and then, yeah, a few weeks ago, I, I said to him, like, dad, I'm going to get you a car. Like something that my nephew can get in and everything like that. We went out, bought him a car and sitting there, like looking at the money, the price or how much it costs. Like I still got it on finance, but still it, it just didn't bother me because it fulfills you so much. Mm-hmm. Like more than any night out, more than anything else especially when you can give those things back. I'm sure you get to a point where like looking after those people who looked after you is actually one of the things that's making me broody. Mm-hmm. That makes me want to have a family because a lot of my appreciation towards my parents is an appreciation for what they did for me. And another thing in my psychedelic trip was they did so much for me. Why aren't I doing it for someone else? So yeah. that's something I got to look at in the next few years. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I put something similar on story the other day and a couple of people not with negative about it, but didn't fully understand that. I said, there's, there's no point in doing anything in life unless it's doing something that's, doing it for something that's greater than yourself. Like a lot of stuff that I did for, for Lucy and because of Lucy and, and what we do together. And because I think like when you win or when you do something on your own, it never feels as good as if you do it with, with someone else. And obviously we were having this kind of conversation before about relationships and stuff as well. And I think that's what makes them so powerful because that feeling of when you do win and do do something else like it and with friends family whatever else it is it makes that that moment or or that win or whatever it may be seem so much more because you can share it with with other people as well i think uh yeah even from a scientific standpoint i don't think selfish genes reproductively would be in our society i don't think people are as selfish as they're, they're made out to be i think that if you're if you're naturally bred in life to want to please people that are close to you, you're going to be a great person for the evolution of the human race. Whereas if you're very self-centered, you're just going to die alone. (laughs) Your genes won't reproduce. I think that is really entwined with us, but I think a lot of us have just lost that ability to connect with it. And I think that any human who does something for someone close to them, when they get that buzz, they're like, oh yeah, that's what it's all about being human. And I think it's great that that happens within people. I think that's another key to people being happy is to look after the people around them. And then if people can do that, they're going to feel very fulfilled. Yeah. The thing at Christmas, like some people enjoy giving gifts and receiving. Like I'm yeah, quite happy to receive always. your gifts at Christmas always. So I like I'm, giving. I'm, it's a good dynamic we've got going on anyway. <laughs> I hate receiving. It makes me awkward. <laughs> yeah. I hate birthdays as well. <laughs> birthdays, I'm like, why are you giving me shit? Just for the day I'm born on. I was like, I hate this. Let me work for it. Let me do something. You're quite happy to just have a pair of socks given to you. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm massively appreciate you coming on, mate. I think we're about to run out of time. I think we've done a nearly two hour slot there. Well, so. my, I, well, your tummy started to go. Mine must have fucking heard yeah. because mine started to go. It's all you've had yeah, almond croissant, didn't it? Croissant. What do you call it? Croissant. I call it a croissant. Yeah, I call it croissant. <laughs> this is the other question I was going to ask you before we sign off as well, because we use it after to some guests. Not all. Do you stand up or sit down? You won't, know, you won't understand you will that. Following number two, do you stand up or sit down? What, to take a shit? After the shit. Um, what, for a wipe? Uh, it depends, but do you know what? I, I sometimes can be tempted for a good front wipe. Like when you go in that really? way and kind of like you cock a bit to the side get the <laughs> hip tilt but then sometimes in other circumstances do you know what if I've, if I've trained really hard sometimes the stand and reach around gives me cramp I've not got much spinal <laughs> rotation you'd have to ask me close to the time but also you mix it up yeah and like do you know what the front is better for if you use flushable wet wipes if you use flushable you, wet you wipes you like wet wipes don't you yeah, but I, I fully stand up. So like I, I will stand up, ben, turn around. Ben and we've got a mirror there. So I like to have a look at myself and what I'm doing first. But then sometimes if I if I stand up, sometimes I'm worried about getting a bit of the drip from <laughs> yeah, the kiss you've yeah. had. And then 
if I, I'm, a, a I'm a hygienic person, if I've stood up and I get a bit of drip in my boxes or in my shorts, I know I've got to change my shorts <laughs> and my boxes. I've been essence, although it's just the piss, I've just pissed myself. Yeah. So I often try and keep all bits of the genitalia within the bowl and just try and do hip tilts, which I can. But especially with a flushable wet wipe, looking after the golden jewels and going through, then you can get a good purchase, make sure you fold it over, um, on, uh, yeah, getting a good sufficient wipe. You, you say this question, like, oh, we always ask this on the podcast. No, we don't. No, no so I we don't. ask it with you certain do. guests. Mate, I'll tell you something that'll change your life as well. They're called anusol wipes. Really? I think it's a really strong name, that, isn't it? So, yeah, for it's it? because it's for like piles and stuff like that, but they feel great on your ass. What's what, that? Is it a wipe? That you wipe yeah, yeah, mate, they're like fiber like pack. It's like but a it's baby like, wipe, but it's not like for babies. It's like if you're feeling like treating yourself, buy a pack of anusol because they're great. Can you flush them? Yeah, 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 yeah you can yeah. flush them. It's like a posh baby wipe. It's... The first six months in my rental agreement, I worried about that shit. The second six months towards that, I'm like, fuck <laughs> I'm like, these ain't my pipes. I ain't got to change shit. I'll flush everything when I'm moving out. <laughs> uh, but again, mate, massive, massive thank you for coming yeah, on. I really appreciate that. your time. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you enjoyed the episode, if you're watching on YouTube, please comment, please like the video, please share it. Whoever puts, whoever puts the most comments on as well, James said he'll 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 send his Rolex to you as well. Yeah. So just make sure to drop those comments in there. And if you are on Instagram and other social media platforms, make sure to share the story because we enjoy seeing the tags and seeing some of the feedback and stuff as well. And obviously, don't forget to drop on to Apple iTunes and rate the podcast as well and subscribe. Yeah. Do you want to plug anything, James? Or should we? Nah, we got enough. Got, nah, they know where to find got, James. We've got IFS coming yeah. as well, so. <laughs> yeah, I, oh yeah, oh, yeah IFS. Uh, International so we'll Fitness there. Summit, Bank Holiday Weekend, 27th, 28th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Battersea Park in London. Fancy. I'm not going to sell it as a fitness festival. If you want to come out on the piss and have a celebrate a big day with us, yeah. come along on the Saturday. We've got a DJ in the evening and it'll be all your favourite people in the fitness industry getting smashed together. Yeah. Be a good time. Sick. Internationalfitnesssummit.com. I'll put the I'll put the link for IFS as well in the podcast notes and on the YouTube channel as well if you want to find it and check it out. When, when people ask for plugs, I'm like, look, I've chatted for two hours. If they're not in the James Smith honey trap at this point. <laughs> <laughs> they're not interested. They're, they're not interested. <laughs> so we will see you. In next week's episode. Bye, Bye guys. guys. I like the little outro. I'm sweating. Oh, mate, I'm soaking.